Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by marine biologist, ecologist, and ichthyologist Chris Gertley. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Now, I just found out you're... <laughs> You just had your appendix out. I should probably bring this up on the podcast. How are you feeling? Good, but you might hear a few moans and groans. <laughs> All right, I, I won't make you laugh too much. I'll, I'll hold all my good jokes off. <laughs> but you're... Uh, okay, we should get this straight. You're a coral reef biologist. Yes. And you're at the highest altitude university in Australia. And the most inland university in Australia. Oh, I'm measured. Um, <laughs> yeah. More uh, than Charles Sturt and the yeah. places are. All right. Uh, well, apparently. <laughs> How does that work? Um, so what I'm really focusing on at the moment is studying uh, really small reef fishes. So we call them cryptobenthic reef fishes. It just crypto means hidden, yep. benthic means living on the seabed, and fishes obviously means fishes. Um, but these <laughs> are these are generally really small uh, fish. They never get, no matter how old they get, they never get longer than about fifty millimeters long, so five mm-hmm. centimeters. Um, and the thing is, we know there are an awful lot of them, but we don't know anything else about them. So wherever we've gone on reefs, we know there's loads of these fish. We have we've got specialized sampling techniques to collect them and identify them but we don't really know what they're doing so the reason i came here was to actually use the facilities at une where they've got um really easy access to a micro ct scanner mm-hmm. so what i've been doing is making 3d models of these fishes by scanning them using this 3d x-ray, x-ray machine and from that i can start building up a library of the sort of skeletal information the skeletal shapes of these fish and looking at the teeth and looking at the eyes and all sorts of things and trying to actually work out from the shape of these fish what they're doing um, on reefs. So, I mean, that's a pretty fundamental question in lots of biology is what's (laughs) what's this critter do? (laughs) I mean, by that, do you mean what's its day-to-day life? You know, what's it get up to or in a broader sense? So the thing is with these fish is they spend the vast majority of their time, not only are they tiny and living on the seabed, but a lot of them actually live inside the seabed. So we can't observe them. Essentially, this is where the the crypto part of their name comes in. The hidden, it's not just the colours. They're often, you know, they can be bright red and bright yellow. They can be really pretty. But they're often hidden in cracks and crevices or actually in among rubble. So what, what I'm really interested in is trying to work out from a sort of ecological standpoint, what they do in terms of how what they're feeding on, uh, where they're living, how they're interacting with other species and other members of their own species, um, and yeah, basically how they how they keep the whole system running. We've, we've got there've been a few pieces of information out there before that sort of looks at them having incredibly short lifespans. I mean, we're talking about some of these fish never live longer than about eight weeks. Oh wow. Um, and three of those weeks they're spent out as larvae in the plankton, mm-hmm. and so they only have five weeks on a reef. And that in, and it, during that five weeks they have to mature to an adult, reproduce, probably change sex, reproduce again, and <laughs> avoid avoid getting eaten. Yeah. And we're talking about mortality rates. So about one in twelve fish die of these fish dies every day. Okay. We're looking at eight percent mortality per per day for the population um and 
So in the past, people have gone, right, these things are really abundant. We know there's lots of them there. Whenever you go and look on a reef, we're talking about 20 or 30 of these little fish in every square metre of reef. Mm -hmm. And they're dying so ridiculously quickly. We're starting to, people started thinking, hold on a minute, these things might be really important as, as, as food sources on reefs, mm -hmm. as a sort of base um, food. My old boss up in James Cook University up in Townsville, he described these things as the Tim Tams of the reef. Um, <laughs> I, I think he's totally wrong. I don't think, from what, from what we've done... As in they don't taste that great? You've well, no, yeah. yeah, they probably don't taste that great. But the thing is, I don't think these things are actually a treat. I think they're a staple. I think they're the rice, the potatoes of the yeah. reef rather than anything. Um, we've done some work recently where we've uh, used witchcraft-like mathematics to calculate. Um, so we looked at the reproduction rates, the mortality rates, and the growth rates of these fish to actually calculate how much, um, how much fish they're growing, essentially mm -hmm. how much they're producing on a reef. And what we found out was if you compare these little cryptomanthic fish to large reef fishes, and you look at how much fish tissue is grown and eaten on a reef, it seems it looks like about 65% of all fish tissue consumed on a coral reef by predators mm. is from these tiny little fish. All right. Even though at any point in time, they probably only account for about 1% or 2% of the actual weight of fish yeah. present. They're just living that fast and reproducing that rapidly that they're, that they're providing such a, a vital amount of, of prey mm. out on the reef. So, yeah, we're trying to work out... Yeah, how they how they sustain their populations and yeah. how they how they get by and what they're feeding on to support such a growth rate. Yeah, it's kind of almost like this hidden step in the food chain that we haven't really thought of. We think of things like krill and plankton being a very basal yeah. food source, but then here's another very very big. I don't know what, what would you call it part of the food web. I suppose that's it. Yeah, a, a level, a component, whatever. The thing the thing is that on coral reefs. So coral reefs, whenever you think of them, you think of this really nice, clear water environment. Mm. And, and that's generally what characterises really you know, healthy, productive coral reefs is nice, crystal clear water. The thing is, there's a bit of a paradox because you've got a really productive coral reef environment, essentially in a desert, because the clear water means that there's very little plankton. Mm. There's very little nutrients in the water available. So what we're actually seeing on these coral reefs is that they don't have lots of, of nutrients coming in from the outside. Mm. So to remain as productive as they do, they need to have really, really tight um, recycling campaigns going on in the reef to keep the energy that's there right. in the reef. And what we're starting to see is that these little fish might actually be really important, feeding on the, the debris, the rubbish, the little tiny bits of, of scunge and detritus mm. left over and putting it back into the into the, the sort of fish white the fish sort of food chains mm. so by taking the the rubbish that falls onto the floor and eating anything they can to support yeah. their growth they're then supporting the the levels of the food chain above them all right so they're not they're not particularly glamorous fish then they're the little maggots the little uh <laughs> millipedes of the coral reef maybe that's a bit cruel to the uh, they're, they're very pretty um but entomologists will probably say that the millipedes are pretty too yeah. um, <laughs> um but yeah no these things can a lot of them are brown and scungy and yeah. fairly drab and like i say we we there's been some work done recently or in the last decade decade or two at least um where people when we normally go looking at coral reef fishes and we want to know what species are there or how many are there. We generally swim along with scuba gear or a snorkel on 
using a piece of paper, a piece of underwater paper, counting fish that we see. Mm. The problem, as I've said, with these tiny little things is A, they're tiny. B, they're generally ca- the ones that do live out in the open are camouflaged. Mm. And C, the vast majority don't. They live hidden in the reef. So when you're actually swimming along, you can't count these things. You can't. You yeah. miss them. So what we do is, um, rather unfortunately, we have to use chemicals to either anesthetize mm. them or, or, or kill them um, to see what's present at the time. And what um, some people have, people did a, f- a few decades ago now. They compared the most thorough counts they could possibly do. So they swam along counting fish, and then they swam back counting even smaller fish mm-hmm. in a smaller area. And then they literally crawled along the reef, sticking their finger in every hole, trying to scare <laughs> everything they could. You know, every time they counted these fish, it would take them 45 minutes to get one count done. And then when they compared that to counting the same number of fish in a sort of two meter by two meter area so you know a little bit bigger than a queen size bed um they did these samples using chemicals to count every single little fish that's there they found that they're actually missing um 50 of all the fish individuals and 40 percent of all the fish species present mm. on a reef um when they're just using the visual counts yeah. so there is there's a huge sort of hidden community of these tiny little fish um that we're trying to find out about, yeah. So they really are like insects of the fish world. I mean, they, that's what we do when we pyrethrum spray for insects. Precisely. It's exactly the same. <laughs> it's exactly the same. The thing is that if you wanted to study arthropods, so, you know, equivalent of insects in the, in the, on coral reefs, there's very little bigger than a, a millimetre long. You know, there's the, odd, <laughs> there's the odd crab and lobster, but the vast majority of the things you'd be looking for are are copepods and microscopic things which are actually the prey of uh often the prey of the little fish that i'm looking at it's just yeah it's it's really difficult to study (laughs) (laughs) and they are brown and scungy and and you know if they're cryptobenthic you are kind of like a real life cryptozoologist (laughs) (laughs) these things are real But very hard to find they mysterious are. life cycles, you know, and this closest is a, you can get to looking for a chupacabra. Precisely. I mean, well, when you're saying mysterious life cycles, this is the one, the thing, one of the things we started looking at recently is we know from their lifespan and their, uh, and their, the maximum age that we find them on the reef and, and their mortality rates that they've got to be doing something really special to maintain mm. their, pop, their um, community um, because we've got so many there, but they're dying so quickly. Yeah. And we actually started calculating, right, how many eggs do these things make in a lifetime? And, you know, these fish weigh a tenth of a gram each. Mm. I mean, a big one is a tenth of a gram. And in that time, in their lifespan, they're just not big enough to produce many eggs. Mm. So one of these little fish in its lifespan, if it, if it lives its full eight weeks, it might produce, you know, three or four hundred eggs. Whereas a, a coral trout that weighs three and a half kilos might produce three million eggs at oh, a time. Yeah. Um, so we, we did some maths and we work out, worked out that just presuming that the, these fish are doing the same thing when they are there out in the plankton as larvae, um, there's no way they could do it. It mm. just doesn't make sense because the large reef fish are pumping out so many more eggs than these little cryptobenthic fishes are. And what we started looking at is trying to work out, well, how on earth are these populations maintaining themselves? Uh, it seems like they must be doing something different. So the way a fish cy- life cycle works is, you know, a fish lays eggs, 
They might sit on the seabed or they might float away. A few days to a week later, the eggs will hatch. And then the larvae, regardless of whether they were laid on the reef or, lay, or floated out in the blue, once they hatch, the larvae will go out into the blue. And obviously, once they're out there, these things are a millimetre long. They're almost impossible to study. And the sea is a big place. And there aren't, yeah. you know, even with millions of them out there, you, your chances of bumping into one are pretty low. Um, so, and it's always really been presumed that all fish do the same sort of thing yeah. once they're out there. But when we actually counted, yeah, when, when you do the maths and you work out that there's so few, so many fewer eggs put out by cryptobenthic fish than the larger reef fishes, yet there are so many more larvae coming back in mm. of them to maintain their population, they must be doing something fundamentally different. So what we're starting to think is that these fish maybe don't actually go as far when they go out into the blue. Mm. So the cryptobenthic larvae may seem to hang around. They seem to do something to stay closer to home, okay. which makes sense because if they lay a few eggs and they've got high mortality rate, you need a constant flow of, of young ones to come back in mm. and replace those holes. Yeah. I mean, do the larvae pop up in samples anywhere? Yeah, and that's the really interesting thing. If you do plankton toes... Mm-hmm further than 10 kilometers off a reef the only fish you'll get are large reef fishes Mm -hmm. if you do plankton toes within 10 kilometers of a reef 75 percent of all the larvae you'll collect are these cryptobenthic fishes so it's obvious that they're not going as far yeah um they are you know it's good and bad you know large reef fish are really resilient to localized disturbances because their larvae travel a long way Mm. so if one reef gets damaged it's all right because their larvae have maybe spread 100 kilometers then their young will survive somewhere else with these cryptobenthic fish it looks like the local communities are really you know well supported because there's loads of larvae there are you know it's literally raining babies onto this reef but if something goes wrong on that reef that little community is stuffed um so it's a really sort of um high risk high reward um, sort of life lifestyle for these fish. And am I right in assuming that they're quite cryptic in terms of their speciation as well? Are they all little brine jobs that there are, are hard to tell apart? Yes, very much so. <laughs> and the thing is because there's there's been a fair bit of work conducted trying to look at what species are which around the world over time. But the more we look, the more we realise we have no yeah. idea what we're looking at. And people have called one thing, one species... Um, so there's one species I'm thinking of right now. It's one of the most common fish on the, the barrier reef. I can't even remember its common name. It's a little dwarf <laughs> goby. Um, and if you and people have called it the same thing from the Red Sea through the Indian Ocean to the Great Barrier Reef and out into the South Pacific. Yep. Recently, they've started breaking it apart. So the one in the Red Sea is a different species. The one in the Indian Ocean is a different species. Uh, one in Fiji they've renamed. The one on the Great Barrier Reef at the moment doesn't even have a name. And it's one of the most <laughs> common fish on the Barrier Reef, really, yeah. when we come and look at, come down to it. So, yeah, there are lots of species that are difficult to tell apart. And every time you look in a book, someone's broken them into even more little species. <laughs> they're, they're sounding more and more like insects. Like, I think I'm, I'm a, starting to like these there fish. There some real parallels. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned before you're... St- Scanning them yep. to get skeletal information. Yep. What, what can that tell you about what they're up to? So I've, through my PhD and after my PhD, I did lots of work looking at the morphology of current fishes, so extant fishes. And I tried to work out sort of 
certain predictors, so the length of certain bones, the size of teeth, and look at how these predictors allow us to determine what they're feeding on or how they're swimming. Um, and what you can do with that information is you can then translate it back into difficult to study groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I did um, after my PhD is I got loads of information about different morphological characteristics of extant reef fishes, and I actually looked at uh, fossil reef fishes. And I worked and I used that information of, right, if the length of the jawbone means that a fish, you know, today can protrude its jaw so far, how has the length of that bone changed in the fish communities over time? And I managed to show things like the, the protrusion of fish jaws, you know, when they open their mouth and they, they sort of stick their jaw forwards, mm. that ability has increased gradually over time, over 400 million years or 250 million years of evolution. Uh, I also looked at how different um, features of the teeth have changed and there's certain tooth morphologies that have that have only existed over the last 40 or 50 million years that have probably come in, um, have sort of gone along alongside uh, the evolution of coral reefs in general. So it looks like these long, fine-toothed fishes have which can feed on detritus between algal turfs on coral reefs. They're, you know, the, the sort of green, scungy stuff that lives between corals. Mm-hmm. Um, to feed on that, you need a really specific tooth morphology. And that tooth morphology has only existed for 40 or 50 million years, and it turns out that this algae is only available on the reef flat. And the reef flats have only existed for 40 or 50 million years. So we've got this sort of convergent evolution where fish and coral reefs seem to have formed alongside each other, mm. playing, uh, playing roles in each other's evolution. Um, so what I started doing here is I actually used exactly the same techniques. The idea is that you can look at large, easy-to-study reef fish and identify a morphological predictor, so whether it's about, uh, the length of a jawbone or the size of the teeth or whatever, to work out what the fish are feeding on or how the fish are feeding or how they're swimming. Um, and rather than looking at a difficult-to-study uh, to assemblage that was fossils, I'm now looking at a difficult-to-study mm. group of fishes, which are these tiny little beasts. It's a very long-winded <laughs> explanation. <laughs> no, the, the, I mean, the techniques you're using are they're essentially what they use for studying fossils and dinosaurs. Yep. You know, they look at something's teeth and go, well, it looks a bit like modern-day herbivore teeth, so it must have been a herbivore. Exactly, so, and, and the thing is you can't see a dinosaur feeding yeah. and we can't see these little fish feeding because they're hidden. They're so hard to um, study, you have it. to study them like... Extinct animal. Precisely, that's it. <laughs> kind of like someone looking for the Loch Ness Monster might study, <laughs> study that. There's <laughs> more and more similarities with uh, Bigfoot hunting too. <laughs> and so how much time do you actually then spend in a lab scanning fish as opposed to out on the reef? Well, them? I have on my shelf a mighty shoebox full of fishes, which actually equates to about... 1,500 fish fit in a shoebox easily. <laughs> um, that was collected in February, and I'm still working through identification and scanning of them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it takes a long time. Yeah. Um, I'm about to start, yeah, I'm going to collect some more of them. I'm heading off tomorrow to Oman, and hopefully we'll collect some, some of these small fish there. But next year I'll be doing some more studies on the barrier reef mm. uh, to collect these little things. Because at the moment in Australia, while sort of back in the day taxonomists so people just wanting to identify species have done lots of work all the way around the country literally just going with either dynamite or poison collecting <laughs> whatever it was when that was appropriate 
Um, very few people have actually counted how many of these fish are in a certain area and looked mm. at the communities and how how they work on a sort of ecological framework. There's really only two locations in Australia where anyone's done any ecological work on these fishes. Mm-hmm. And they're both, when I mean, there's Orpheus Island and Lizard Island, both of them up on the central and north barrier reef quite close to each other. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Those are the two locations anyone's looked at the ecology in Australia. So mm-hmm. hopefully come the new year, I'll start looking on the southern barrier reef at Heron and then... <laughs> Uh, permits pending I will be <laughs> uh, working down here from uh, at Coffs Harbour out mm. of the Solitary Islands as well. Yeah. I mean, how, how important is it to you to be doing stuff in the tropics? Is it uh, that much greater place to work or is it simply that the water's warmer and it's nicer to be in? That is <laughs> definitely a major, <laughs> major uh, factor. So these little fish do do exist everywhere. Yeah. Um, well, everywhere, tropical and temperate, not so much in, you know, Arctic conditions. Yeah. Um, so there are amazing communities, and there's been a lot of work done in New Zealand, for example, mm. on cryptomenthic fishes and in the Mediterranean. Uh, the thing is that we have... You know, as as with most systems, when you go towards the tropics, you get more diversity, more species. Mm-hmm. Coral reefs are incredibly biodiverse, so you do get more species mm-hmm. in these tropical locations. So not only is it a, a nicer place to go and work, but you get <laughs> you, you you make your life far more difficult um, by uh, throwing in a load more species at the yeah. same time. So it's, but you get a lot more interesting in, information out of it. So you can start looking at things like competition and niche utilization. So how, how do we get, you know, 10 species in a square meter? How mm. do they coexist? Um, when, th- when you look at them and they're all looking very, very similar. Yeah. Um, we're starting to see that they actually have the most ridiculous habitat requirements. Mm. You know, the certain species you'll only find in, certain kinds of dead coral with a bit of algae on them where the gaps between the coral branches are less than a centimetre and blah, 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 (laughs) blah. Um, So we're starting to actually not only look at the ecology of these things, but they're allowing us to test ecological theories of of how do animals coexist? Mm. Because rather than, you know, looking at animals that are separated by hundreds if not thousands of meters on a on the savannah for example we can look at the same we can test the same theories on a single coral head yeah. um because you've got so many different species <laughs> having to to coexist in that habitat yeah i mean the logistics of studying these things is kind of mind-boggling because not only are they hard to study inherently but you add all the difficulties of marine field work which is having to think about you know breathing underwater and <laughs> putting fuel in boats and that sort of stuff. The nice thing is with these little little fishes is that they are that common and ubiquitously present is mm. that often we don't actually have to go very far. Yeah. So it's very nice. I spend most of my time, you know, in the lagoon at Lizard Island, sat in two <laughs> metres of water, um, yeah. not having, you know, a, a, a few hundred metres from the research station. Yeah. Um, now we are starting to look at more sort of far further afield work and because yeah every every place we go to has got a different community and we're finding new and exciting things mm. so yeah you do have to think about it but the nice thing is we don't have to you know i can you know pop, pop all my samples in a in a, a jar smaller than a coke can at the end mm. of the day and 
while it sounds horrible when I say, oh, I'm killing thousands of fishes, <laughs> these fish only live two weeks, uh, only yeah, live a few yeah. weeks anyway. Um, we've done work and we've shown that when we do do one of these samples that's the size of a queen bed, you mm. can't actually tell. After two weeks, you can't tell that anything's been done there. The community is yeah. completely recovered. And it's actually recovered not from fishes from the surrounding area spreading in. It's actually recovered from larvae settling into that little clear patch um so what it means is at the end of a field trip like i said i get my shoebox full of fish and there will be you know my shoebox of fish there has got three or four unidentified species in it which Mm. i'm working with the taxonomist to identify (laughs) it's i've got work looking at the gut contents i've got work looking at the tooth structure um we're doing niche utilization models, so this co- how they how they exist in um, different habitats. Mm-hmm. So one you know ten day field trip gets you a block of fish that will answer or help to answer a, a lot of different questions. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of work you have to think about organising it, but at the end of the trip you get an awful lot of information out. The the really nice thing is because they are difficult to study, mm. there are so many questions left unanswered. Yeah, it's a good strategy for a biologist if you study something we know absolutely nothing about. Mm. All of a sudden you're an expert. And it leaves you with the fun questions to answer. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to find a niche in, yeah. in that little field. You can kind of do anything and yeah. get, get a name for yourself and have some cool discoveries happen. The problem is you get distracted by cool things all the time though so yeah. like i said I'm, I'm juggling a lot of a lot of uh, i've got a lot of balls in the air and you're left struggling with how the hell do i do this in the first place where do i start yeah. <laughs> and when you catch your fish and you go i have no idea what that is <laughs> so uh, spending lots of time up in the great barrier reef how, how's it looking these days uh, it's in a fairly poor condition. Yeah. The nice thing is, so Lizard Island, where I've done most of my work, was one of the hardest hit locations because even before the bleaching events in 2016, which are the, the most recent sort of major events, it had, Lizard had actually been hit by two consecutive cyclones mm-hmm. and, a crown of th- and some problem with crowns of, crown of thorn starfish. So the really nice thing is, going back to Lizard, is there are still little pockets where it's absolutely gorgeous. There's really healthy coral. And when you dive on and then you go to other bits and when you drop in the water, it kind of looks like a, a moonscape. It, mm. The coral that was there has been raised. It's absolutely flat. But when you start looking on those areas, you see that there are hundreds and hundreds of, of baby corals that are starting to regrow. So there is hope there. The problem is that if we do see these um, multiple bleaching events where rather than just having maybe one every decade like we've seen for the last few decades Mm. if we start seeing one every couple of years as we're starting to predict it there's just not necessarily going to be that time for Mm -hmm. the for entire reefs to um, recover which is really unfortunate Um, having said that there are always going to be places there are always going to be those little pockets that are protected Mm. from the worst of the environmental problems so there will always be pretty areas yeah and and while certain corals grow very slowly, a lot of the really sort of pretty branching corals actually grow, you know, they might grow 10 centimetres a year if they're in a really good condition. So give it, you know, five, 10 years of, of limited disturbances and a reef has got a really good chance to recover in a really healthy way. So it's all, you know, let's see what happens, basically. Yeah, yeah. Climate change is this, is this big, scary thing that's happening and it's not going to do reefs any favours. Mm. Um, most of the fish 
will be all right as long as there's a coral here or there. Mm. Um, and the corals themselves, are, they're, they're not going to go extinct, or it's unlikely they'll go extinct. We're starting to see increased amounts of coral around the solitary islands and things like this. We are seeing migrations of, of species towards the poles. Mm. Um, so corals won't necessarily go extinct, fish won't go extinct, but reefs as we know them will likely undergo some sort of fundamental change yeah. they're going to get less less exciting yeah i think that's the people forget that you know conservation and worrying about uh, climate change isn't just about you know saving the elephants and all that sort of stuff because overall things will be fine you know yeah. animals will adapt and things yeah. will some things will die some things will stay the same but it's the overall changes are quite, I don't know, we can only predict them to a certain extent and exactly. how they affect everything else, including us. That's the yeah. scary part. And, and the thing is, when, when you, you sit there and go, yeah, reefs are really pretty, but you forget that they're in a lot of locations, they're actually doing really important jobs, you know. Mm. It's, they're the things that the waves break on that stop the waves breaking on the beach and washing the village away. Yeah. Um, you know, so globally, it, it, it does have this sort of potential to be a really... Um, important change mm-hmm. um we just need to yeah and it's and unfortunately we're generally learning what's going to happen after it happens mm-hmm. you know bleaching events when we see these large-scale bleaching events realistically we've only seen two or three yeah uh, as a planet but then we've had two in the space of two, two bleaching events in the space of two years mm-hmm. which is enough to cause some major problems and if we are seeing this sort of increasing rate of it happening um, we're going to see some major problems around the world. Mm. But then, yeah, hopefully certain... There are there are efforts being made now to try and help seed the corals, so to increase the number of baby corals mm-hmm. that are settling on the reef. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, some of those will actually be able to withstand the, 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 the climate change that's happening, or maybe they'll just land in that, like I said, that little location that doesn't get hit as hard and you mm. end up with a a better colony, a, a better um, location to provide more offspring mm. in the future. The seeding reefs, does that include also like the construction of artificial reef habitat or just... I'll get in trouble here. I'm not a big fan <laughs> of artificial reefs. Oh, I think, all right. I think they're a really Do good... Go on. I think they're a really good idea. Yeah. Um, if So say you're a, a, a tour, tourism operator yeah. and you've got your patch of reef that you dive on every day. Yeah. It's a... Keeping that bit of reef healthy and looking nice is of vital importance to you. And at that point, yes, artificial reefs are awesome. They provide you a a really sort of good localised area where you can increase the complexity, you can seed some corals and hopefully they'll grow and survive and you can really intensively look after that. But when we've got the barrier reef that's, you know, two and a half thousand kilometres long, we just can't do that. So they're, they're, they're really valuable from a sort of small scale conservation thing where... And, you know, keeping a bit of reef that people can look at is really important. But in terms of a way to conserve the barrier reef, yeah. essentially it's a drop in the ocean. Yeah. Um, so to clarify, artificial reefs, for people listening, these involve sinking some sort of structure for things to grow on? Yes. So what you can do, you can do any number of things nowadays. There's, there's some modern, really sexy 3D printed structures <laughs> that you can clip together like giant underwater Lego or they can be as simple as putting big concrete blocks down mm. um, or, or sinking a, a shipwreck, for example. Yeah. Can, it can form an artificial reef. Um, 
a lot of the more recent ones have involved people sort of putting um, uh, rebar, so reinforcing bar, concrete, the steel tubes mm -hmm. you put inside concrete or steel bar you put inside concrete to reinforce it. You make meshes of that and you can actually um, hammer them into the seabed and, and tie corals onto them and the corals will then grow and it provides a nice sort of mm. uh, protected environment for these corals to grow on. Um, and it's a really cheap and easy way to 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 actually do this um there's all sorts of different techniques out there basically it involves increasing complexity of the seabed you yeah. make you make artificial nooks and crannies and caves and things yeah. for corals to grow on and fish to hide in um and there's all sorts of different techniques many with different pros and cons mm -hmm. yeah but they're always quite labor intensive yeah. or, or expensive to do so and yeah. uh, you know for the great barrier reef the availability of 3d structures for things to grow on probably isn't the issue it's no no it's <laughs> it's just the water temperature at the moment <laughs> yeah yeah so i in case i haven't mentioned it on the podcast before uh, i started off my career in marine biology and eventually turned to the dark side and then became an entomologist was was marine biology always your thing you came in wanting to do this and Stuck with it? Probably since I was about four. <laughs> um, yeah. um, I actually grew up quite a long way from the sea, mm. um, but I, I lived in Portugal for a little bit when I was a, when I was pretty young, like I say about three or four. And yeah, since then I'd always just been interested in the sea. Yeah. And all the way through school, I knew I wanted to do it. And yeah. yeah, ended up did my undergrad in the UK, and then. Met a few people who'd done masters and PhDs in Townsville and went there for eighteen months. Stayed mm. there for ten years, and then yeah, got, yeah, finished my PhD and got a job here in Armidale. Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like there was a while when I was growing up where the the phrase marine biologist was just the coolest thing on the planet. It was up there with an you know, astronaut and rock star, and really that probably played a lot of influence in me wanting to go down that route, thinking, yeah, I'll be a marine biologist. I'll be super hip and cool, and I'll. <laughs> Have long blonde flowing hair and grow an extra foot and I'll be great. I mean, how, is, what's the truth of it? How far does the marine biology tag get you? Ah, uh, so like nightclubs? <laughs> not uh, quite. Not quite. <laughs> uh, probably the, the the particularly the the issue was doing an undergrad in marine biology in the UK. Um, <laughs> When I, my, my first week of my undergrad, you'd, you'd ask all the other students the, the same sort of questions. You'd say, you know, why, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? Yeah. Why marine biology? And most, a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, I've just always been interested in it. And then there were a few people who were like, oh, I just love dolphins or I just love sharks. <laughs> uh, those people ubiquitously disappeared after about a month or two because <laughs> doing uh, marine biology in the UK, you find out that it's pretty much focused on mud and worms. Um, <laughs> and yeah, well, it's well, working up at Lizard Island might seem really glamorous. There's a lot of really hard work involved as well like we're up at ridiculous times in the morning yeah if it's you know borderline cyclone we're still out working because it costs us money to be there yeah. and we can't we can't we need to collect the data <laughs> so yeah and yeah you get every so often get things happen that you're like why am i doing this <laughs> but then you do sit back and look at the beach or whatever and go yeah no this is great yeah. um no I do, you do get to do some amazing things but yeah. It's also really diverse, so mm. it, it ranges from, like I say, people studying mud in estuaries and the worms that live in it 
through to people studying deep sea fishes and and sharks and dolphins and things mm. like that as well. But yeah, the coral reefs is a, a really good thing to study as well because yeah. it's a they're pretty and b um, there's a, there's so much life there that there's room for a lot of people to study study yeah, yeah. them. Well, I, I realized very quickly that the phrase marine biology was kind of a little bit pointless because it's just kind of biology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's biology in a slightly more difficult environment. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's it, and and we do exactly the same things as any other biologist, and in fact, we're generally about twenty years behind. So it's it's really nice because you can look at what terrestrial biologists are studying and what mm. techniques they're using, and go, "Oh, can I apply that to the marine system?" And <laughs> yeah, you 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 get yourself a, a lot of headway in going ah. Oh, People have been doing this in, you know, on the savannas or in rainforests for decades. Yeah. Um, and you just add in having to squeeze into a mouldy wetsuit. That's it. And, every and day. <laughs> scaring the centipedes out of your dive gear and, and, <laughs> and, and breathing underwater for an hour or so at a time. So you're, from here, to go out to do field work, you're, you're at least a thousand k's away or a thousand meters away by you know, height, <laughs> vertical level. Yeah. So that, that for the most part, isn't that difficult because when I was in Townsville, mm-hmm. um, I'd either have to work at Orpheus or Lizard. So I'd always have to travel some distance. So yeah. I've basically added one domestic flight onto my, <laughs> my, my, my travel. Yeah. Uh, the actual issue is, fingers crossed, if, if I end up doing work soon in the solitary islands, it seems lovely because it's only a two-hour drive away. I could mm. drive down there, jump in the water, collect my fish and come straight back. Unfortunately, mm. when you're diving, one of the yeah. risks is um, going to altitude after you dive because this is it increases your chance of getting the bends. So I will, if I'm diving down in coughs, I definitely need to spend another day or two down there just to off-gas afterwards so you just let the nitrogen well, come out of your system you're just gonna have to hang around Harbour exactly for a couple of go, days and, <laughs> go and play on the beach and go i can't possibly do any work um <laughs> yes so that's that's the plan yeah having said that the water off there is a bit chilly for my bones <laughs> there you go tropics is important <laughs> i mean it is important to find those little moments of field work to appreciate where you are because you sort of get so caught up in the pressure of collecting data and getting work done that you forget you're in an amazing part of the world and seeing things people rarely ever see. Exactly. And that, that's a lot of the thing I think about being a biologist is you sit there and organising your fieldwork and conducting your fieldwork is really stressful. And you've got real pressure yeah. to get the work done. Because like I say, I've got a 10-day field trip and that sort of those fish have got to keep yeah. me in work for a year, essentially. <laughs> if something goes wrong or if the weather's bad, I don't have a choice. I have to yeah. you know get up and do it. And some days you just don't want to, but you still have to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it makes it really easy to sort of go, oh, this is awful. But then you sit back and look and you go, actually, no, this is a really gorgeous place and it's yeah. fun. Uh, <laughs> you definitely need those times to, to sit back and relax and look at it and, and enjoy, yeah. enjoy the opportunities you get. Well, another very frustrating part of being a, a scientist is waiting to find out if you got your next grant. <laughs> you and I are in a similar boat at the moment, waiting to find out about DECRA applications <laughs> for we, our listeners. We certainly are. So once you've done your undergrad and your master's and your PhD, that's all well and good and lovely <laughs> because generally there's someone there in the background that's got some money and is keeping you alive. Yeah. 
once you get out of that, you're you're expected to go and be a a, a big boy scientist and make your own money. <laughs> and there's not many people who are willing to give you four hundred thousand dollars at a time. Mm. And yeah, at the moment, the the Australian Research Council have got lots of grants that they that they've decided who who's got them and who hasn't got them. But and lots of careers are on the line, like mine and yours in a couple of years. And if we get them, it will be lovely. But, yeah, we have to wait and find out. And yeah. Wait until the government decide to rubber stamp those forms. Yeah, and this is, we're guessing, all tied up in a bit of a political scandal at the moment with uh, ministers and their role in improving grants. And, That's and it. We're, we're, I don't know, have you heard any gossip on when we're likely to hear about uh, I heard apparently the, the person who actually rubber stamps it said as pot- potentially as late as February, but hopefully that was confused. Um, <laughs> so the ARC have now officially put out a statement saying definitely before Christmas. Okay. Um, so so it, uh, it said fourth quarter of the year mm. on the website. I think it's going to be scraping the, the the very end of that fourth yeah. quarter hopefully well yeah otherwise easily... people people whose jobs end at the end of the year which is most scientists yeah will be in some trouble yeah i mean these things are usually you know it's sort of october it's yeah. early october if you're lucky yeah we're now mid-november yeah it was late november <laughs> <laughs> and yeah i mean these if people get these grants they'd be starting them in hopefully january yeah they're meant to start uh, from the end of January to the yeah. end of June, um, <laughs> and this is yeah people's people's careers yeah three or f- up to three years of yeah. of guaranteed employment. So and that's probably the most important message to take away from this stuff is that <laughs> we don't we don't want people thinking that research funding goes towards fancy equipment and travel and that sort of stuff. It's just paying wages. Really. Yeah, yeah. The vast majority of all of it is is wages. Yeah, yeah. like. Like we were saying, these grants that we've got in there, you know, they're close to $400,000. But realistically, when you account for all the admin fees and everything, yeah. there's only about 100000 or a little over 100000 of that goes to actually funding research. Yeah. The rest is keeping us alive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. The kind of research I do could be done with a tank of fuel and a butterfly net type of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it puts a lot of pressure on people having a... Yep. Find their own salaries, really. Yep. And that's, yeah. But once you've got your own salary, you can do what you want, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> you get the freedom of it. You just get the, the nail biting towards Christmas. <laughs> yeah, just add some extra stress to the end of the year. That's it. Let's <laughs> announce grants. All right. Well, maybe in the next few podcasts, you might hear me with it. either a happier tone or just depressed and ranting about how I'm going to go throw it all in and. Become uh, a baker well, or something. Who's hoping? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I should probably let you go and, and recover from your <laughs> recent surgery and That's get back to right. work. No worries. <laughs> if right. people want to find out more about your research, they can follow you on Twitter. Yep. And your handle is at BuzzGoatly. That's it. G-O-A-T-L-E-Y. I have to ask, Buzz Goatley, is that a nickname? What's... Nickname I've been called by my family since I was born. Yeah. <laughs> For a reason? <laughs> I think just... it came from Buster when my mum was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it's been Buzz. Yeah, that's since. it. Been that forever. All right. Yes. Good. I like it. <laughs> all right. Check out at Buzz Goatley and keep up to date with all the, the goss on 
impossible to study fish. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much. And thank you guys for listening. Check us out at Institute Science on social media or InstitutionScience.com for more podcasts and videos and blogs and all sorts of stuff. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.